Father, bold we approach your eternal throne. And we come not just to claim a, a crown through Christ. We come to cast our crowns before you. And we come to make our, our needs known before you. Most of all, our need for you. You are our great desire. You're the pearl of great price. Uh, for you, O oh Lord, we sell all, and to you we come to find our joy, to find our satisfaction, to find our hope. To you we come for pleasure and love. To you we come for everything, for life and godliness. Apart from you, we have nothing. Apart from you, we are nothing. But with you, O oh Lord, we have everything. And in you, we find our soul's delight. And so we ask that you would once again bless us by your word. Speak to us in your word. Give us hearing. Give us understanding. Give us illumination. And give us, O oh Lord, a heart set to obey all that we see in your holy word. Speak to us, O oh Lord, we pray. In Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I want to add my welcome back as well to the Howard students. Alex, good to see you and the rest of the clan and uh, to the GW students. Any GW students in here? GW, okay. They, they back next week. Uh, the GW students and, and those who are visiting with us, uh, we're glad that you're here. We have spent uh, the last 11 weeks or so in a sermon series that we've called Being the Church. The first five weeks, we invested in thinking about what the church is, trying to get a basic theology of the church. And we discovered there that the church is really a pilgrim colony. We are people who are passing through this world, but we are spiritually united to Jesus Christ as our head. And each and every Christian is a member of his spiritual body. And so we talked about the implications of that theologically. And then we switched gears and we've spent the last six weeks or so thinking not about the church theologically, but thinking about the church relationally, trying to get a vision for what the Bible teaches about how the church is to live and move, how it, how it acts and how it feels. And to do that, we've been doing a topical series in what are called the one another passages of the Bible. All those places in the Bible where we're told to do things like love one another, serve one another. And specifically, we, we looked at love one another, accept one another, encourage one another, forgive one another, bear with one another. And last week, Pastor Dennis was helping us to think about not grumbling against each other. Well, this week we're going to round out the one another's, and then next week we're going to do sort of a summary sermon, sort of trying to bring it all home. And this week we're going to conclude with another one another that in some ways takes us back to love one another. Our text there is in Romans chapter 12, verses 9 and 10. And we want to think about the idea of honoring one another. We are called in the Scripture to honor one another. 
Now, the book of Romans gives us the longest section of theological teaching in the Bible. You can divide the book of Romans into two parts. Chapters 1 to 11 give us really theology and the theology of how it is that God saves the people for himself from sin and judgment through the sacrifice of his son, Jesus Christ, so that everyone who believes on Christ is no longer in danger of condemnation of God's judgment, but has received through faith in Christ eternal life and a place in God's kingdom. In verse chapters 12 to 16 are the second half of the book, which really focus not so much on doctrine, on teaching, but it focuses on duty, on ethics, how we are called to live as God's people. And our text this morning is in the middle of Romans chapter 12. Chapter 12 begins, you'll recall in verses 1 and 2, calling Christians to yield their bodies as living sacrifices to God and to renew their minds. Verses 3 to 8 of Romans 12 takes up the topic of spiritual gifts, and Paul exhorts the church to use their gift, whatever that gift is. Then verse 9 comes to the issue of love again, and really 9 through the end of the chapter is focused on love. 9 to 13, how we are to love each other inside the church, and then around verses 14 to the end of the chapter, how we are to love those outside the church. So look with me in verses 9 and 10. This is God's word. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Cling fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. That last sentence is our topic. But as you can see, it's in the context of love. So what I want us to do is to ask and answer three questions from the context. We want to ask and answer the question, what is genuine love? What is genuine love? Then we want to observe the command that we're thinking about today. What is showing honor? What is showing honor? And then finally, I want to give us some motivations and strategies for showing honor honor to one another. Five motivations, five strategies for showing honor to one another. Let's take that first question, what is genuine love? Again, you can see there a couple of times in verses 9 and 10, the issue of love comes up. The first thing we get there is a command, let love be genuine. The Greek word translated love is a word you've probably heard of, uh, agape. So this is agape love. It's interesting, that word is very rarely used outside of the Bible in other Greek writing. It occurs primarily here in the Christian scriptures. It's as if the the early Christians thought that what we are trying to describe by way of love is so unique, we need an obscure word to describe it. Agape here is uh, a love that Paul, a word that Paul uses a lot in his writings. He uses the most of all of the New Testament writers some 75 times. It refers to a God kind of love. It is a selfless, unconditional expression of grace and compassion. So the clearest place we see this kind of love is, of course, in the cross of Jesus Christ where he voluntarily, in love for sinners, goes to the cross in our place, 
to suffer God's judgment, which we deserve. He gives up his life so that we might have forgiveness and be reconciled to God and accepted with God as God's own children. That, the Bible says, is the demonstration of love. God demonstrated his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. It's the kind of love that Paul is talking about here as he starts verse 9. God's word says we ought to have the same kind of selfless, unconditional love for one another. Notice what it says, let it be genuine. Love must be genuine. Or you may have a translation that says it must be without hypocrisy. That's an interesting term, isn't it? That our love should be without hypocrisy. That word comes from the, the ancient Greek theater. A hypocrite in ancient Greek was an actor, someone who engaged in the tragedies and the dramas and the plays of of ancient Greek culture. What Paul is saying here is this love should not be play acting. It should not be wearing the mask. It should not be something that we pretend to do. That love must be genuine. It must be sincere. It must be real. It it must be a hundred. That we are to love each other this way. One writer puts it, love is not theater, it belongs to the real world. And so we ought to have a real world love for each other. And really, the rest of the paragraph is a series in the Greek of, of participial phrases that are defining genuine love. And so if you ask yourself the question, what does genuine love look like? Well, it looks like the next series of things in this paragraph. I want to give us three before we come to our theme uh, part of the verse. Number one, genuine love abhors evil. It abhors evil. We don't use the word abhor in everyday conversation very much. But it means hate. It, it, hate with a kind of repulsion. That, that you know, when you get that bad taste in your mouth, you know, you hate something to the point where you feel like you want to throw it up. That's what love, that's love's view of evil. It is repulsed by evil. It hates evil. It is, it is sort of provoked to toss evil out of its mouth, so to speak. It's a holy hatred. Love and evil never ride together. So true biblical love never tells you it's okay to do what's wrong. 1 Corinthians 13, 6 says, love does not rejoice at wrongdoing. Genuine love never celebrates evil. It abhors evil. That's how you know it's genuine. Number two, genuine love holds fast then to what is good. It holds fast to what is good. That phrase, hold fast, that's the same phrase that Jesus used in Matthew chapter 19, verse 5, when he's describing marriage. When he says, Thomas, a man shall leave his father and mother and what, Thomas? Cling to his wife. Thomas like, leave me alone. You got to get this down before November 2nd, brother. Cling to his wife. Turn around and ask Terrence and Stephanie, and the two shall become one flesh. 
that's the picture that hold fast has in mind. It's a, it, it's a word that actually conjures the notion of glue. They're joined together. They're stuck together. They are, they are tied inseparably together. So love clings to what's good. It hates evil and clings to the good. This is how you know somebody loves you. And no matter what's what happening with you, they seem always to find the good in you. It ain't always good in you, but they seem always to find it. They, they, they sort of discourage you from the evil and they see the good in you and they encourage the good in you. This is genuine love. Third thing. Genuine love includes, notice there, brotherly affection. You might have a translation that says, be devoted to one another in brotherly affection or brotherly love. Now that, that translation, be devoted to one another in brotherly love, it gives us a sense of, of double commitment, doesn't it? On the one hand, right there in the front, being devoted to each other. Then on the back end of the sentence, brotherly affection, brotherly love. So here now the word is not agape. The word, uh, Tim, is Philadelphia. It's brotherly love. So genuine Christian love at ARC should not be a distant, uninvolved, indifferent kind of love. It should be family love. It's brotherly or sisterly. The kind of love we're talking about is not transactional. You do this for me, I do that for you. The kind of love we're talking about is relational. It's born of the relationship itself. Let me give you an illustration. Anybody who's got brothers and sisters here ever been angry with their brother or sister or angry with their cousin? Angry enough that you're talking to other people about it? So mad at your brother, so mad at your sister, you, you run them down. And you ever had this experience where you, you angry and you talking about your brother or sister and you going on and, and next thing you know, the, the friend you're talking to, they done joined you in it. And they start talking bad about your brother or sister. You're like, hold up, hold up, hold up, hold up. Hold up, hold up. I can talk about them, but you can't talk about them. And, and what reason do you give them? That's my brother. That's my sister. That's my family. In other words, you done forgot about the transactional mess you and your brother and sister are in, and now you're reminded of the relationals. Like, hold on, we related to each other in a way that you ain't. And then you start defending them, don't you? Well, that, that's brotherly affection. Brotherly affection, sisterly affection is a protective and a warm kind of love. It's committed, it's devoted. Genuine love in our church should show itself as family love. So in summary, we're thinking about this context. We're called to a God-like agape love. It's not play love, but genuine. And we know it's genuine because it rejects evil, and it clings to good, and it is warm and family and brotherly and sisterly. So our subject this morning really is occurring in this string of expressions of genuine love. So when we come to talk about honor, we're talking about one of the ways genuine love shows itself in the body of Christ among the family of God. 
So the question becomes, what then is showing honor? What does Paul mean when he says we ought to show honor to one another? It's interesting that the sentence actually says outdo one another. That's the command. Outdo one another in showing honor. And as far as I can recall, somebody might correct me later, this is the only place where Christians are explicitly called to compete with each other. We're not called to compete with each other in terms of our gifts. We've got the best gift or whatever. We're not called to compete with each other in terms of um, how much money we have or, or whatever it is. But when it comes to showing honor, we're called to competition, to outdo each other in showing honor. So what is honor? Well, this word is connected to an Old Testament word called kabod. It's a word that gets translated glory. And glory carries with it several things. Number one, it has the idea of weightiness to it. So if something has glory, it's weighty, it's deep, it's not light, it's not superficial, it's not trivial. It has a kind of gravity to it. But, but glory also carries with it the notion of, of beauty and splendor. And, and, it, and it sort of connotes the idea of, of riches or, or treasure. And all of that's tied up with the ideas of, of reputation and importance. So to give someone glory is not to flatter them with superficial or light and meaningless praise that doesn't last. To give them glory is to improve their reputation, to improve the perceptions of their importance with comments that are deep and weighty and full of gravity that are meaningful and add value. Those are the ideas that are connected with honor in this text. So when we honor someone, we say things about them that are meaningful, beautiful, weighty, and that improve their reputation and the perceptions of their importance in the community. So think back to that illustration with a friend who started saying something bad about your brother or your sister. Now imagine after you've corrected them, that that's off limits to them, you then start saying positive things about your siblings. You start to speak about good things in their character. You start to rehearse the accomplishments that they've achieved recently. You begin to, to brag on them. You, you begin to let them, them shine. You downplay the argument that's been going on, and now you start to upplay everything that's praiseworthy. Well, that's when you're starting to give glory. That's when you're starting to honor the person. And God says, we are to outdo one another in showing honor to the other. Now, I know some of y'all think of yourselves as naturally competitive. You got a competitive instinct. Well, if you want to compete, here's where you compete. Here's where you compete in showing honor to others. You don't compete to bring honor to yourself. That's what the world does. We compete to shine the light on others for praiseworthy and excellent things about them. Here's the one time it's okay to one-up people. You know what I mean when I talk about one-upping people? 
You ever know, conversations where you say something like, ah, my son got all A's this semester. And the person you talk to say, well, my daughter been doing that for like five years. <laughs> you know, you're talking to somebody and say, yeah, man, I'm so pleased with my wife, so proud of my wife. Uh, she got a raise at work. My wife got promoted last week. You know, everything you say, they one up in you. Everything you celebrate, they got something more to celebrate than you do. You know anybody like that? Okay. If you don't know anybody like that, you might be that person. (laughs) Don't be that dude, all right? (laughs) Don't be that dude unless you are one-upping other folks and showing honor to other folks. So a saint might say, you know, man, Derek is a really encouraging brother. And you come along and you say, you know what? He is. And I'll tell you something else, he's a faithful servant too. You know, or someone might say to you, I appreciate the way you, you parent your children. And you say, thank you, because that's what you do when you get a compliment. You say, thank you, right? And then you say, I, I appreciate the way you parent as well. But you know what else? I, I, I'm struck by the way you honor your husband around others. So what we're doing is multiplying praise. What we're doing is multiplying honor. What we're doing is one-upping each other in noticing the work of God's grace in the lives of people that we are related to. That's the competition that we're called to, to outdo each other in showing honor. Now, a couple questions. Very simply, are you the kind of Christian that honors other people? Do you honor others? Or as we heard last week, are you quicker to grumble against others? Do you protect the reputation of your brothers and sisters? Or do you tear them down? One's an option, the other isn't. We're called to outdo each other in showing honor. Which brings us to the last thing we want to consider. What motivations then and what strategies does the Bible give us for showing honor? We, we want to compete with each other, and if we're going to compete with each other well, we've got to have the right hearts as we do this, or else we won't do it, and we've got to have some biblical strategies as we do this, uh, or else we'll do it in a crazy kind of way. So I want to give you five motivations and five strategies, and we're going to bounce around the Bible just a little bit, looking at other places where honor is mentioned and taught in the New Testament, and we're going to use these to search our heart and to guide our strategies, okay? So here's the first motivation. The first motivation is right here in Romans chapter 13, verse 7. It's obligation. Obligation. Look there at Romans 13, 7. Pay to all what is owed to them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed. Revenue to whom revenue is owed. Now notice, respect to whom respect is owed. Honor to whom honor is owed. That word owed means we're obligated. You know what it is to owe somebody. Every month those bills come. You remember you you owe the light bill company, you owe Verizon or AT&T. You are obligated, you are in debt to pay what you owe. The same is true of respect and honor. A person is worthy of respect and honor. If they have earned it, 
um, then we are obligated to give it. And a person may be worthy of respect or honor for one of three reasons, either because they are a person of excellent character or they hold a position that deserves honor and respect or in some way they have performed in a way that deserves honor or respect, either because of their person, their position, or their performance. We may be uh, obligated to show honor to someone else. Now, those things don't always occur together in the same person in the same way. So you can have a person of excellent moral character with a position that in the eyes of the world is insignificant and whose performance goes unnoticed. There are people who probably clean your offices whom you don't see, but you know it's clean when you come in. Because they have been dutiful through the night to empty the wastebasket, to wash the windows, to do whatever goes unnoticed usually because they're people of character. They deserve to be honored. Or you may have a person of low character who occupies a tremendously important position and whose performance may be suspect. I ain't got to say no more, right? And yet, that person is due respect and honor because of the position's sake. Gets tough, don't it, brother? (laughs) So we show people honor because they're owed it. Now, what's the strategy here? Well, the strategy, very simply, is to recognize, to, to train ourselves, to commit ourselves to recognizing one of those three things or all of those three things about each other and upon recognizing it, acknowledging it. So my mind goes to Philippians chapter 4, verse 8 here. You can turn there with me if you like. Philippians 4, verse 8, where Paul writes to the Philippians, finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is commendable or praiseworthy, If there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Now, that text should be applied to our relationships. That text should be applied to our church. The Lord is directing our minds to particular things to think about, to meditate on, to study. And notice it says, if there is what, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is commendable, whatever is just, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about that. Now, is that your habit of mind? That you dedicate your thinking to things that are praiseworthy and excellent? and honorable, especially as it relates to the brothers and sisters in the body of Christ? If we do, if we dedicate our mind to thinking about those things, we will always have reason to honor each other. Because to look at another brother or sister in Christ and not see something of Philippians 4 verse 8 in their lives means that you are saying you don't see God's grace at work in their life at all. And at that point, the problem is not that person. The problem is you. And so you find 
that anything, that whatever, you meditate on that, you let that create a sense of obligation to commend, to praise, to honor the brother or sister in the Lord. If you want to outdo others in showing honor. Let's go to the second thing. Second motivation. It's in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. You can turn there with me. Verses 23 to 25. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 23 to 25. Paul writes there, speaking of the church, and talking about members of the body. He says, on those parts of the body that we think, notice, less honorable, we bestow the greater honor. And our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which our more presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. Now, verses 24 and 25 are interesting. I want to draw this out for us because it tells us of God's motivation in putting the church together. God has so placed intentionally, strategically, every member of the body. Think of it this way. Every person you are related to and know in Christ has been placed in your life precisely there by God. And he has done that with an aim. He has done that so that there would be, number one, no division in the body. But unity is not the end goal completely. He's done that so that there would not only not be any division, he's done that so that we would grow to have the same concern each for the other. In other words, so that you wouldn't care more about Christian A than you do Christian B. But that we would care about Christian A and Christian B in the same way. That's why God has put you in the relationship that you're in. With some people who are quote-unquote honorable, now in the text, honorable there has to do with gifting, so they maybe have some public gifting or things of that sort, and some folks who are dishonorable, not in terms of character, but in terms of their gifting. Maybe they have a gift that's more back, back scene, behind the, behind the curtain, so to speak. And God is saying, the way I designed the body, the people that we think are less honorable, you double up on the honor. The people you think are less presentable, you double up on the respect. You double up on the modesty. So that in the end, the community of God's people is a community saturated with equal concern. Where everyone is honored. And that sometimes takes doubling up on the honor for those who don't naturally receive it. So, the way you apply this, the strategy here then, if our motivation is to build a community of that kind of empathy, of that kind of equal concern, the strategy here is we don't run to the people who are always getting honor and give them more honor. That's the way the world does it. The last people who need more honor are rock stars and movie stars. They're in the cameras all the time. We don't stick around at the award shows to see who was working the boom grip. We, we, don't, we, we rarely ever hear of the set designers and the costume designers, but there would be no movie without those folks working the sets and working sound and doing all the sort of editing that goes on that nobody sees, that takes hours and hours and months and months. It's the same with the church. 
Right now, there are people serving sound. You don't see them until there's a pop or glitch in the sound. But they've been doing it faithfully and joyfully. But ARC isn't known for the sound team. That ain't right. It's natural, but it ain't supernatural. The supernatural vision here is we would honor them to such an extent that they would not feel as if they are lesser second-class members in the body of Christ. In a week or two, children's ministry is going to kick up again. And, and some of you are so glad. So glad. Some of the parents are like, I get to hear the sermon again. And uh, some of you are like, I don't hear no kids crying. Well, our children are worthy of double honor as the weaker members of the body. And those who are serving in children's ministry, usually outside the notice of what goes on in here, are worthy of double honor. And so if you're tempted to in some way honor Pastor T, Pastor Dennis, Pastor George, as guys who are often up front, that's okay. We, we take your honoring. But give two hands full to the persons that you don't see often who are more likely to be on the margins, who are more likely to be unnoticed, so that we build a culture where everyone is honored. That's the idea here in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. And it should be our motivation too, that we esteem each other highly in that way. So who is it in your estimation that should be receiving double honor as weaker members of the body, unpresentable, quote-unquote, members of the body. Who has God placed you next to in the body so that you would not be divided, but that you would show equal concern for those members? How will you do that this week? Number three, third motivation, to help us outdo one another in showing honor. It's humility. Humility. Turn with me to Philippians chapter 2, verse 3. Philippians 2, verse 3, Paul is about to enter into that Christ hymn where he talks about Christ making himself of no reputation, taking on the form of a servant, and humbling himself even unto death. But before he gets to the hymn, he gives a, a straight prosaic instruction to the church. He says in Philippians chapter 2, verse 3, do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Philippians 2.3 is an almost identical sort of idea or statement as Romans 12.10, as our, as our text for this morning. Philippians 2.3 helps us understand that people most likely to be competitive and jealous of others are least likely to show honor to others. The more competitive you are and jealous you are, the more proud you are, notice the word there, conceit, do nothing out of rivalry or conceit, the more proudly competitive you are, the less likely you will be to show honor to others because you will in your flesh think that if somebody else get a little shine, that's taken away from you. And so the Bible is calling us here to humility. Notice how, it's, how it says there to count others more significant than yourselves. So, so if we are looking around to see where we rank compared to others, you know, I'm not quite as cool as Asa, you know, but I'm, I'm cooler than Babatunde. 
I, do, I, don't, I don't sing as well, you know, as Valerie. But I sound better than Christy. Had to pick somebody safe to pick on. Right? <laughs> I'll pray for a brother on the way home. But if we're always creating a pecking order, then, then we're actually exhibiting a kind of pride. And to the extent that we have that kind of pride, we're not going to win this competition to show honor to others. We actually need to be humble in order to show honor. Humility is both honorable itself and it gives rise to honoring others. You guys know that I think that uh, Michael Jordan is the greatest basketball player in the history of the game. No doubt. No discussion. But he was not the best person in the history of the game. All I have to do is cite for you his Hall of Fame speech, if you've ever seen it. Here he is being honored by his profession, in which he should be exhibiting some humility, and he invites people to his Hall of Fame speech that he, he dogged on the court. And his whole Hall of Fame speech was basically calling them out about how he used to cross them up and dunk on them. It had no class. It is the worst speech in the history of the Hall of Fame. So, so here's a guy who excelled on the court, but did not excel in humility. And because he didn't excel in humility, he didn't really take the time to duly thank all those who got him there and to give honor to whom honor was due. Now, you know, I think LeBron James is less than the greatest basketball player in the history of the game. I don't think he has Mike's competitive instinct, but he does seem to be a better person than Mike. I remember his coming out of high school having a reputation for being a real team player. Now, he's a standout on his high school team. He was a kind of Adonis for his age and whatnot. And yet, he was quick to pass the ball, involve his teammates, build them up, had a wonderful reputation for being a team player. I don't know if he has the same reputation now, but at least coming out of high school. And it was because he played the game humbly. And I think in some ways we see that in other aspects of his life, too. Humility will allow you to honor others. So the strategy here is to count others more significant than ourselves, to think of our neighbors as important, to love them enough to think of them as more important than we are. From a, from a place of humility, speak of them as, as, as significant, as excelling us. And so let me ask just a couple of questions again for take-home and application. Are we tempted more toward pride or humility? Just at a baseline level, thinking about our hearts, are we drawn more toward pride or more toward humility? Are we more burdened by whether others think we are important or more burdened to give significance to others? In other words, are we more quick to get upset because we didn't receive some recognition we thought we deserved, or are we more quick to get upset because someone else didn't get recognition we think they deserve? Which way is our heart going? Humility would motivate us to honor others. Let me give you a fourth motivation. 
Fourth motivation to honor others is reverence. It's reverence for God, fear of God. First Peter chapter 2, verse 17. Peter writes there, honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. Uh, in that paragraph, just as Paul is in Romans, in one sense, Peter is talking about um, the submission, the obedience that we owe to government rulers. And he's talking there even about a pagan emperor in ancient Rome. And, and Peter explains there that we are to honor everyone, right? So everyone we meet, every person we meet, we are to show honor to. We're to have a particular concern to love the brothers, to love the brethren, to love the church. And we're to honor the emperor. But nestled right in the middle is this, this, this two-word sentence that almost seems out of place. It is fear God. It is to honor God, respect God. It is to love God, but also tremble before God because he's holy. The people who fear God don't trifle with God. They love him, but they take him seriously. And it's that fear of God, that honoring of God, that gives rise to all other honoring of people. Because what do we know about people? Every person we know is made in the image and likeness of God. So if we honor God, we dare not disparage his image bearers. If we respect God, we will respect everyone made in God's image. If we respect God's authority, we will respect every authority that God has placed in our lives, from parents to government and so on. And so it is this development of the fear of God that actually produces in us a desire to honor everyone, whatever we think of them, whatever position they hold, whatever their performance. Now, what's our strategy then if we're going to honor in this way? Well, in the context of 1 Peter 2, our strategy for showing honor is submitting to others. It's submission. Look back up at verse, 12, verse 13. We are to be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. We're not to rebel, but to give the respect the office deserves because we know God established it. And we are to respect and to love others because we know God made them in his image and likeness. So what about you? Do you fear the Lord? Do you reverence him? Can you reverence can your reverence for God be seen in your respect for people, for brothers and sisters in Christ, for those in authority? Which brings us to our final motivation, final point. It's our witness. Having a good witness should motivate us both to honorable living and honoring others. So slip back to 1 Peter chapter 2. Verse 12, that's what Peter writes there. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. You see the connection there, the purpose? He says, now, keep your conduct, keep your life honorable before Gentiles, those who are not Christians. And the reason, so that when they see your life and they, and they disparage you and want to disparage you, they can't because they have to glorify God because of your good works. Your honorable life is a witness that closes the mouth of an unbelieving world. 
Your, your honorable life is a witness that causes praise to God, even from people who don't know him. And so we ought to be motivated to have that kind of reputation, to have that kind of honor ourselves because of our conduct in Christ. So that not, we would, not that we would be big up, but so that God would be magnified. So that they would praise God on the day of his visitation. So that they might be saved, so that they might be ready for his coming, that they might love his coming and love his beauty because it, 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 in one sense they have been impacted by the honorable lives of Christian people. Now, how do we do that? What's our strategy for living an honorable life? Last time we'll turn our Bibles, go back to Romans chapter 12. And we'll finish here. Romans chapter 12, verse 17. The second part of that verse gives us our strategy for living an honorable life. The first part says, repay no one evil for evil, but instead... Give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. Give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. In other words, living an honorable life requires we think before we act or speak. Now raise your hand if your mom and dad have been telling you that since you've been about five years old, okay? We all heard that from mom and dad. Now here is our heavenly father saying the same thing. In fact, mom and dad probably got it from him. Here's the father saying, listen, give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. And when he says in the sight of all, he's talking about not only the church, but, but the world. I mean, he's actually giving the world permission here to sort of decide whether or not we acting like we ought to be acting. And there's a, there's a healthy way, there's an unhealthy way of, of fearing man and trying to please man. That's not what's, being, that's not what's in, in, in view here. There's a healthy way of considering, how will my next words, how will my next action be received by those who are watching me? Will they be received as wise and good and right, even if it's in disagreement with them? Or will it be received as foolish and uh, braggadocious and sinful? The Bible's saying, slow down, pause a moment. Don't act, then think. Think, then act. I think I probably, to the extent that I have, have learned this in some measure, I think I probably learned it from Ravi Zacharias. Probably 20 some odd years ago, we attended a conference at which he was speaking in Charlotte, North Carolina. And um, it was a Q&A session, and somebody was asking him how it was that he was able to go to uh, Ivy League schools and these other places and face all these hostile questions and, and respond like such a diplomat. And, and it struck me. He says, well, honestly, you know, when I'm standing on the stage with my debate partner, I'm really not thinking about my debate partner. He says, I'm really not trying to win the debate. I'm actually trying to win the audience. And so I want my comments, I want my, the way in which I engage the person I'm debating to actually be informed by what other people are seeing, what other people are thinking, and, and I want to do it in such a way that I'm winsome and I carry people toward the truth. That, that's, that's always stuck with me. And I think it grows out of a text like this. And as we live our lives as Christians in the world, our strategy is to think about what's honorable in the sight of all, so that as Peter says, 
they might praise God on a day of his visitation. So, are we thinking carefully about living an honorable life? Or are we coasting through life? Are, are we going with the flow and reacting to whatever comes up? Do we give careful thought to how our words and actions will be seen by people who are not yet Christians so that they will glorify God on the day when he comes? That's our aim. So how do we end this? I've given you five motivations. Obligation, equal care, humility, reverence, and our witness. We've got five strategies. We want to recognize others as praiseworthy. We want to recognize those who, as weaker members, deserve double honor. We want to recognize others as more important than ourselves. And we want to recognize others as made in the image of God. And we want to think carefully before we act. Those are our strategies. Our competition is to outdo each other in showing honor. And here's my final question for you. How would your heart and mind and life, how would your experience of God and the truth of the Scripture and the fellowship of the saints change if we were competing to outdo each other in showing honor? How would that impact us? How would that impact our community? Let's compete. Let's pray together.